Open to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we'll be today. Following up as we continue to walk through this glorious gospel and uh, walking alongside Jesus and the apostles and just as Susan just sang so well, when we want to know Jesus more, where do we go for that? The word of God. Yes, that is correct. Where we've been, remember, we are a church here at Parkway Baptist trying to get the, uh, the, the mission vision statement kind of in your hearts. We hadn't talked about it a lot here lately, but we're driven by the word, transformed by the spirit, and sent to make what? Disciples, exactly. Driven, transformed, sent. That's why we do what we do, and we base everything on the word of God. So we back up a little bit, look at verse 17. And this, is, uh, this is, was last week's message. We try to give you just a, just a taste, reposition us, then we plow into the scripture for today. So last Sunday, we looked, and this, uh, this is what the word of God says. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hallelujah, amen. So the points last week were, the missionaries return joyfully, not joylessly, Jesus shares his witness to Satan's defeat. Christ shares his power and authority to the missionaries. And he constantly wants to remind us and those that follow him that we are to rejoice in the promise, not the power. Because we have a tendency to want to rejoice in the power and forget the promise. But Christ says we have those backwards. We rejoice in the promise and that our names are written in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Beginning in verse 21 today, and there is a parallel in this passage um, at uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, and we'll hit that at the very end. So we'll begin with, uh, in Luke 10, 21 through 24, then hit the last couple of verses in Matthew to close out. Verse 21, in that same hour, that means the same time that the, the, that the, that the 72 came back celebrating, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, we would assume to the 12, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's the reading of the word of God today, the passage we'll be looking at. Let's look at verse 21 first. And I believe the truth that is revealed in, these, in this first verse is this, is that truth, truth from God, truth from Jesus, is revealed to the humble and contrite children. Humble and contrite children. Now you may think, well, wait a minute, well, I'm not a child, right? But you actually are to God, Amen. 
You are his child. He is our father. And that's what he means by what he says here, by what Jesus is saying here. In that same hour, he rejoiced. And that term there means exceeding joy. Just, just exploding in joy, Jesus, in this moment. And I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now let's ask some questions about this verse. First of all, what does it mean that Christ rejoiced in the Holy Spirit? I mean, this is Jesus Christ, amen? I mean, everything Jesus does is in the Holy Spirit, amen? So why does Luke point that out? Why does he point that out? Number, number two, what does Christ mean when he says that his father has hidden these things? What are these specific things? And third, why is he rejoicing that these hidden things have been hidden from a certain group of people, from the wise and understanding, and they have been shown to another group of people, which would be the children? Because as we read the text, and as Colton read in Proverbs earlier, I thought we were supposed to be in pursuit of wisdom and understanding. Amen? Okay, so, so we want to try to clear up what Jesus is talking about here. So first of all, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, what Jesus is about to say in this verse is pretty controversial. Because what Jesus is about to say is that it is the Father's pleasing will that some people are given the secrets of the kingdom and some people are what? Not given the secrets of the kingdom. That's pretty controversial. So Jesus, show, so Jesus and God show some and hide it from others. So what, what on earth is this talking about? And certainly, certainly, someone sitting out in the audience and hearing Jesus say those words could say something like, well, that teaching is not of the Holy Spirit. Amen? That teaching is not of the Spirit of God. And so Luke, throughout his gospel, wants to make very clear that everybody understands that everything about the Lord Jesus Christ is anchored to and connected to the Father through the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what he is trying to get through. I mean, it would be an easy accusation, would it not, for somebody to make an accusation toward a preacher and say, that preacher is not what? Spirit-led. I mean, that's like one of the most hurtful things you could say to a gospel preacher, amen? That guy's not spirit-led. I mean, how could you possibly know whether a preacher is spirit-led or not? What would be the, what would be the, the number one factor by which you would judge whether he was spirit-led or not? What he, what he teaches, what he preaches, by the content of what he preaches, mirrored by his life, mirrored by his character. But there's a lot of people who masquerade as angels of light and seem like they have really good character and seem like they're really good gospel, gospel men, but when they preach, you can, you can hear the false teaching in their words. John the Apostle dealt with this in, during his lifetime, and he wrote a letter in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to make certain that they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
And then he says, by this, you will know that if, if he's the, with the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So during the time of John, there was this, this heresy floating around where people were saying that Jesus was just a spirit being and did not come in the flesh. So nowadays, what we see, if John was living and writing these days, probably one of the things that he would go to is he would go to the book of Genesis and he would talk about how Jesus affirmed the fact that there was what? Male and female, amen? Amen. And that marriage was between one man and one woman, a legitimate man and a legitimate woman, if he was writing today. But back when he was writing, the character of Christ was under fire. And so Luke also is trying to make certain that everybody understands that what Jesus says is of God. And so he says he is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and speaking in the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke goes overboard in showing that by giving you one Holy Spirit reference per chapter. So we have 10 up to chapter 10. Now, why does Jesus, why is what Jesus says so controversial is because he is thanking his father God, and I've already told you this, we'll hit it again, for two things. Number one, he's thanking him for hiding the truth of Jesus from a certain group of people and revealing the truth of Jesus to a different group of people. So he is is hiding it from the wise and understanding. Now, that's a little confusing. So who is he talking to? Many commentators see this group as the religious elite, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They would have been the primary ones that considered themselves wise and understanding. The ones that had the corner on proper theological understanding of God. The experts of the law. Those that were unteachable. Those that thought they had arrived with wisdom and understanding and were unwilling to be taught or to be told they were wrong about something. That would be who he means by the wise and understanding. For them, the truth and the revelation of God was held from them because they thought they were already there. The other group of people would be the little children. This would be the apostles, the 12 that responded to Jesus and following him, or the 72 that responded to him and went on the missionary journey. They listened to Jesus and believed Jesus and trusted Jesus at his word. They were the little children. They responded favorably to the gospel message. They would have been the primary ones that considered themselves unworthy of God and unqualified to be his leaders. And they were the very ones that Christ, what? Chose to be his leaders. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. I highly encourage you to turn there for just a brief moment. I'm gonna just start reading it because it's a lengthy passage. But it will really help clarify Clarify what Jesus means here. And I fully believe with all my heart that Paul got this teaching from Jesus and then expanded it because he saw the church in Corinth making the exact same mistake. In cherishing and loving worldly wisdom and ascribing uh, prestige and popularity to those who had worldly wisdom but being condemning and, and, and isolatory toward those that came in the name of Jesus Christ. So this is what he said. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. It's not like that kind of wisdom, Jesus, the wisdom Jesus gives us. But we impart 
meaning we, meaning the apostolic witness, Jesus and his apostles, the church of Jesus Christ. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That's what you have the privilege of knowing and believing and following. That is why at the end of this message he says, you are blessed for what you have seen. John will go so far to say, some have seen and believed, but blessed are you because you have what? Not seen and yet what? Believe. Exactly. So Paul continues, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now listen very carefully to what he says here. This is, this is some of the most profound, this, this is deep, deep. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the who? The spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, Paul says, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying is there is a great difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And which one of those is the people of God, which one do we need to cling to? Wisdom from the scripture, wisdom from God, wisdom from, from, from Jesus. That's the wisdom that we need to cling to. But so many times, it is the last wisdom that we will seek out. Most of the time, we will cling to traditional things we have heard in the past, assuming that they are true, right? That's what we do. We cling to the things that we've heard and assume they are correct. Sometimes they're correct, sometimes they're not. But what we need to do is when we hit areas of discomfort, areas of, of lack of knowledge, where we should always go first are the scriptures, to God's word, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the wisdom that we want. That is the wisdom that we need to get us through this complicated, godless world that we live in. We must. Because if we don't, the decisions and the judgments that we make will not honor God and we will find ourselves displeasing to him or we will find ourselves under the discipline of Almighty God because he loves us. So that's what Jesus is saying. That he, he brought a wisdom that is hidden from the arrogant of the world hidden from the wise of the age and the rulers of the age that think they have, they have everything figured out with some type of scientific formula or mathematic formula, he brings a wisdom and gives it to little children that has been hidden from ages past. And we are privy 
to that wisdom. The wise and understanding, a couple of examples, Pontius, Pilate, and Herod, they would be the ones that, that Jesus is talking about. Little children, that would be the apostles, Lydia from the book of Acts, and Timothy. And we need to conduct our spiritual lives as dependent children on God. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus would say it a different way. He would say, at that time, he came to Je- the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling him a child, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So brothers and sisters, the truth the revelation of Christ comes to the humble and those that are willing to hear God's word, whether they think it's good or not, they will listen to it, they will accept it, and they will follow it. James chapter four, verse six says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the who? The humble. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That is what God is looking for. That's what he's looking for. He is looking for humble, contrite children. People that know that they need God. People that have heard his word and the Holy Spirit has brought conviction upon their heart and mind to realize I need this in my life because I am a sinner in rebellion against the one who created me. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here, exactly what he is saying. So the truth is given to humble and contrite children. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, my, my question is, for those of you that have, that, have, that have read the Gospels before, I mean, I feel like the Apostle John just swooped in, right, and grabbed Luke's feather pen and started writing, because that sounds like it came straight out of the Gospel of John. That is one of the strongest Trinitarian passages that you will find in the Bible. Listen to that again. All things have been handed over to who? Jesus by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the who? Father. Or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a theology, a theological word that Protestants have have held to for centuries, and it's called the Trinity. Raise your hand if you've heard that term before. Yes, thank God. The Trinity is a very important teaching, a very important teaching that was fought over for centuries. And it was finally, everybody finally came to some form of an agreement at 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 a council called the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. And what they basically said was, was that the, the, the essence, the homoousios, 
was the same between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But specifically, it was Jesus, because the humanity and the divinity of Jesus was extremely difficult for Greeks and for them to get their mind around. Extremely, and the Jews as well, everybody really, but, but specifically, that's why Constantine uh, sponsored many of these ecumenical councils was to try to bring the body of Christ together so they would stop arguing over the nature of who Jesus was. And one of the passages that they went to was this passage in Luke that is, that is just soaked, literally soaked with Trinitarian language. Justin Martyr was the first one in AD 165 in his book, in his little pamphlet called Apology, where he spoke of the Trinity. Tertullian in AD 160, he was the one to first describe the, the three-person nature of God. The Cappadocian fathers in AD 350 actually used the term Trinity, then it was all unified at the ecumenical council in, three, in 325. So this, this, is no, this is no minor theological doctrine. This is not something that can be compromised. The Trinity cannot be compromised. It is the very essence of what we believe about God. We believe the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all the same God expressed in three different persons. It's mind-blowing. And, and, and depending on what crowd you're talking to, the type of vocabulary that you use to describe that can get you drugged through the mud pretty bad. Because, because it, it matters what type of terminology you put upon the person of Christ and God. Trinity is what we have believed. So what is so important about the Trinity? Why is it so important? Because the Father, based on, the, on this passage, the Father knows and plans the ministry of the Son. So the Father is the one that kind of oversees everything, and then Jesus is the one that came, and through him is the only way we come to know who the Father is. That's the Trinit our Trinitarian God. John chapter five, verses 19 through 24, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. We don't understand that. We don't understand that. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. That's why it's so important that we get the Trinity right. Rejecting one is rejecting the other. Believing in one is believing in the other. The Bible makes that very clear. If you want salvation, you must believe in them all. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but Jesus represents the Father, and the Father sent the Son. That's why it's so important. So the Father knows and plans the ministry of the Son. Verses 23 and 24, the disciples were privileged for what they witnessed. The disciples were privileged for what they witnessed. Have y'all watched the, the trials on TV here lately? Y'all been watching the trials, the, the Parkland shooter, uh, you know, he was, he was put on trial. There was another, I think the guy that ran over a whole bunch of people a couple years ago. 
he was on trial. I've caught a few of those trials, and I don't know that I've ever seen, um, I've never seen so much arguing with, with judges before. Uh, it's just amazing to me the gall and the boldness of people in this culture who will argue a judge tooth and nail publicly in the courtroom and not be taken away in handcuffs. I mean, 25, 30 years ago, if you had seen some of the stuff going on in these courtrooms, it would have been over, the, 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 the jailer would have come over and took the person away in contempt of court, but now they will spend 15 to 20 minutes. Have you seen this? Arguing back and forth with the judge. It's just nuts. That's just a little personal sidebar, my anguish. I'm just sharing the anguish with you, okay? It's just, it's just nuts. But it's been good seeing all these wicked people that have, that have caused all this carnage finally being brought to justice. And you get to see it all take place. You get to see the witnesses come up. And that, this is where I'm going with this. And being a witness to something is a great privilege. It is. Now, Hollywood has kind of made a witness to be something that's, that's, that's terrifying and scary. Because if you've witnessed something and, it, and, it's, and you witness somebody that's you know, bad and mean, they're gonna come after you because you witnessed against them, and I get that. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you're a witness to something, God has chosen you, God put you there and put your eyes on that situation to be able to witness so that you would be able to testify to the truth. And, and we're losing that in this nation. We're losing that. People are terrified. They will not go testify. You have to testify to the truth if you witness something. You have to. You have to speak the truth. So right here, the Bible says, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, so he turns from the main speech and he turns to his disciples and he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So for all these hundreds and thousands of years, okay, that the God's revelation, the Old Testament and Israel and the promises of the Messiah and the Exodus and all of that, the patriarchal promises coming down through time, the kings and prophets all wanted to see who this Messiah was gonna be and they never got there. But now, all of a sudden, during the time of Rome, the turn of the century, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born according to the law. Jesus comes as a born, born a human being, sinless, of a virgin, and chooses 12 men to follow him to impart the mysteries of the kingdom of God and then chooses dozens more as time progresses. What a blessing it is. What a blessing it was to be an apostle and to be chosen by Jesus to bear witness and testify to who he was and the truth he brought. Amen? Amen. There have been thousands of faithful, godly people down through history, privileged, faithful believers. Why do the apostles get such a blessing to see, know, and follow the Messiah? That's my question. Why now? Why them? Why? The answer is really not completely clear. He gives us hints that he hasn't chose the who. He hasn't chose the wise and understanding. He has chose who? 
little what? Children. That's the hint. He chose children. He chose the lowly. He chose the humble. He chose the least likely people you would ever think that he would choose to be his servants to take the gospel forward. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go running up into Phariseeism or running up into Sadduceeism. He went to Galilee and he picked some roughneck fishermen were his first picks. In the, God, in, the, in the book of Acts, they were described as untrained, unschooled men, and he chose them, most of them, to follow him. Timing, and God is seeking infants and children, people who will really see and, and hear him, and what has enabled them to see? Obviously, the Holy Spirit, obviously. Obviously, God's choice of them and the Holy Spirit, but what else? One scholar said this, and I absolutely love this, and I, and I believe that this is a key to some of this and why American Christianity in many circles is so weak and anemic. And I'm gonna cite him perfectly. Because in these apostles, we see the integrating of the exercise of power and authority along with the motif of glory with the experience of suffering and rejection. The mystery of that, and it hit me. Being an apostle, walking with him and seeing Jesus do the things that he did the three years that he lived. Do you remember some of the things that they saw? Raising people from the dead, healing people with leprosy, healing a woman of an issue of blood that she had had for over a decade, calming the storm, calming the seas. All of that, Jesus was able to do. And then they saw him be put on a cross and saw him die. Of course, that's not the end of the story. What happened after that? He was buried, and then three days later, he came up out of the grave. But at this point, Luke chapter 10, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. He's given a passion statement or two, but we're not there. And so these disciples, they have seen the miraculous in his life, and they have seen him raise people from the dead, but, but them going out on their own missionary journey, that's kind of a big step. It's no longer Jesus is with them, they're on their own. And so somehow, some way, Jesus knew their heart and chose them to send them out because they believed it even though they didn't completely understand it. And I'm gonna tell you, I believe ultimately, ultimately that is the heart of a true believer. I don't know why my life is falling apart. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time. I don't know why things never seem to go my way. I don't know why this is happening or why that's happening. But I'm gonna tell you what, I know that God is sovereign. I know I love him. I know he loves me and I'm gonna trust him just like Job said, though he slay me, I shall worship him. Amen? That's what makes a salt of the earth Christian, kill me, God. Allow me to be killed. Take my life. I will still worship you, believe in you, and serve you. 
take everything from me in this material world, I will still trust you, I will still have faith in you, I will still love you. That's the true heart of the Christian. Because it ain't about this place, amen? It's about the place beyond. It's about glorifying him. It's about being his servant and about loving him and helping other people come to know who he is. Not about our comfort, not about our pleasure. He made that very clear, the first commission, the commission statement he gave to them. This is gonna be a rough road. Don't take a tunic. I'm sending you out as, le- as, as, as sheep among wolves. When you go into a town, you meet somebody. If, if, they're, if, they're, if they're welcoming to you, go there and stay there and don't leave. But if they, if they are, reject my message, shake the dust off your feet, go into the public place of the town and let them know that God's judgment is coming upon them. The disciples were privileged for what they witnessed. To be sure, even to the saints of the old dispensation, glimpses of coming glory were given at times, even while these men were still living. The prophet Isaiah saw a vision of Messiah's glory and spoke of him. King David, in the spirit, ascribed to the coming Messiah the name of the Lord in Psalm 110.1. But none of these prophets and kings, while still on earth, saw the incarnate Christ. None heard his words come from his mouth. None witnessed the miracles. They all died in faith, not having received the fulfillment of the promises. And among all these were the 12 apostles and the 72 that had been called the closest to Jesus. How blessed they were to be witnesses. And finally, we'll jump to Matthew 11. Verses 28 and 30. This is that passage that you've heard probably a hundred times. After Jesus finishes his rejoicing message and speaks of the Trinity and talks of the Father's involvement and speaks of their blessedness as witnesses to what they have seen and what they will continue to do, then Jesus makes another, it would seem to be another invitation call to those that are listening perhaps that have not committed to him thus far. And he says, come to me, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's why the Bible rails on worrying so much as believers. (laughs) We shouldn't be worrying about anything. Do you really think, do you really think that some human action is gonna subvert the will and the reign of the Almighty God? (laughs) Do you really believe that the government of the United States has the power to subvert the sovereign rule of the Almighty God of the universe? Do you believe that anyone in the White House has the power to subvert the sovereign rule of God? No. So why are we worried? Why don't we do our jobs, amen? Let's just do our jobs. Trust God. Serve one another. Love one another. Take the gospel into the highways and byways, not fear. Not fear him. He's already told us he sends it out of sheep among wolves. But he is our shepherd. <laughs> and I don't know a wolf that can take him. Amen? He don't, he don't exist. 
his fate has been sealed from the foundation of the world. As Luther said, he is a dog on a chain, and that's all he is. Barking, 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 barking. That's all he can do. Just scare you through barking, that's it. God's going to shut him up forever one day. Amen? Going to shut him up forever. So close. The truth is revealed to humble and contrite children. The Father knows and plans the ministry of the Son. The disciples were privileged for what they witnessed. And look to Jesus. Look to Jesus for freedom. For freedom and rest. Freedom and rest. Did you hear that? Come to him. If you're heavy laden and burdened, come to him. And once you've come to him, don't go and pick it back up. Leave it. Leave it. I I, I could not imagine my marriage to Angie without Christ involved in our marriage. I could not imagine. We we would have killed each other by now, amen? I mean, I'm I'm not joking around. We would have killed each other by now. But because our marriage is built upon the foundation of Jesus and forgiveness and redemption and understanding, we we have made it for 21 years. 21 years. I mean, when when I think about that passage, I mean, I think about the yoke of our marriage. Angie and I have learned from him. We try to be gentle and lowly in heart. We know we are not perfect parents. Matter of fact, we 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 may be a couple of the worst on earth for all I know. But I do know this, that Jesus is involved from sunup to sundown in everything that we do and our, and our love for him has been proven time and time and time and time again. Follow him, love him, give him your burdens. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. For these truths today about being humble, contrite children, the reality of your, of your Father, our Father, through you, Lord, our faith in you and our belief in him through you. The great privilege we have as your church, following in the footsteps of the apostles that came so many, so many centuries ago. And Lord, finally, to, to know that we have freedom and to know that we have rest in you, in our faith in you, Lord, and that you will take the burden from us as you have taken our sin. And I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, that does not know you or are listening by live feed, that before the song ends, that they would. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.